Hi everyone, welcome to Resistance Recovery. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. It's, uh, it's been a while. I've been planning to do this, but I have with me my friend and author and researcher, Tom Cheatham, who is a scholar of the, I guess, the court man identify himself as a Protestant theologian. Am I mistaken? He didn't identify himself in any helpful way. <laughs> okay, the, the, the unidentifiable Henri Corbin. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, okay. But before we start, maybe a little bit about you. Oh, oh, a little bit about me. Oh, well, that's, that's, um, so, um, oh, let's start. It, with in college <laughs> but but i mean because my my original um, my original studies were in philosophy and then there was a long period where that didn't work out and eventually well and i and i worked for a number of years as a carpenter and woodworker um and and realized that that wasn't going to going to take me in, into my dotage and so I went back to school and I and I got a degree in biology but the philosophy never leaves you and after I so I, I taught biology for quite some time but the the philosophical and, and humanistic aspects sort of came together in a program in environmental studies that we developed at the little college I was teaching at. And so I had the opportunity to do both um, biological work, but also um, ecology from a humanistic and religious and spiritual and historical aspect. So, so it was really the best of both worlds. I was satisfying my biological um, desires, <laughs> as it were. At the same time, I was able to, to resuscitate my interest in philosophy. And then while I was doing that, um, I encountered the work of James Hillman, who some of you may know, who was a Jungian psychologist of a fairly um, uh, radical and um, iconoclastic sort. And I loved his work. By this time, I was almost 40 years old. And I, and I really felt that Hillman's approach to reality was something I'd been lacking and that I, I just fell in love with Hillman. Then, after reading Hillman and Jung for a number of years, um, uh, Hillman mentioned a, a mentor and hero of his, Henri Corbin, a French theologian and philosopher. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, and so I started reading Corbin. And 25, 30 years later, I'm still talking about Corbin. So there was something there for me, too. Um, and how many books have you written about Corbin? I think five. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, 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 I first met Tom when he had written, I think, three. Saying, I don't know if I have another one, and here we are at five. Yeah, I've been saying that for a long time, you know. And and I, I, just to put them in context, if anybody does does look at them, the the first one was specifically about Henri Corbin. Oh, and I, let me do a footnote here. I always say Henri Corbin in the French pronunciation because I got used to it when I first spoke about him in Europe. And in Europe, if you Americanize it and say Henry Corbin, they will look down their noses at you, you know. Over here, if I say Henri Corbin, people think I'm being effete. Um, but I'm so used to it now that I just pronounce his name as he would have, Henri Corbin. Um, anyway, the first book was about Henri Corbin explicitly, and I was really trying to explain his work to myself. The books after that have departed increasingly over time from an attempt to be objective about what Corbin said to to material which is more personal and more coming from me and more comparative about Corbin and other thinkers, because what I'm really interested in, in my own life, um, is the function of the imagination. And what Hillman and Corbin argued and presented, argued for and presented in their own lives, was how to live your life in the um, um, out of a uh, out of a belief, or I don't even want to. I don't want to use the word belief. Out of a uh, conviction that the imagination is our central form of knowing, and that it permeates everything. Mm -hmm. And for me, well, it took decades to get it through my head and down into my heart. But what it allows you to do is to, to, to counteract any fundamentalisms that linger. And we all have lots of them, <laughs> places right. where we're frozen and afraid and, you know, and these, these folks and others who I've encountered since then who have worked at themselves and in the world long enough to get to that point, they are my heroes. Yeah. Well, I think increasingly they're mine too. Um, so Hillman would talk about the literal, but I think if I'm not mistaken, Corbin would speak of that more in terms of the idol. Am I mistaken? Yeah. Oh, perfect. And Corbin comes to this way of thinking by being a scholar of Iranian mysticism. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Primarily Sufism. Is that correct? Technically speaking, um, yes. Okay. You want to, <laughs> you want to go into that? Here's, here's the short version of, Here's the elevator version of, of Corbin. Well, actually, it'd have to be a very tall building um, because he's complicated. Um, but 
he was born in, in Paris in 1903, so that puts him historically, he died in 1978. And so he was raised in the Catholic tradition and he studied at a Catholic school and then he studied at the Sorbonne. But right from early on, he was a, 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 a philosopher and a, and a mystic, frankly, although he doesn't talk about his own experiences very much, but he was a, a, a philosophically oriented theologian who early in his life mastered the Christian tradition, the, the philosophical and theological ideas of the European Christian tradition, but in his mid to late 20s, for historical reasons, which we could discuss, but we need not, he was, um, he got interested in Islam through a couple of professors at the Sorbonne, one of whom gave him a, a, a manuscript in medieval Persian and said, this might be a book for you. <laughs> And Corbin was a linguist, among other things. He spoke, I don't know, a, a dozen languages, you know, among which was medieval Persian. And when he read this book, it, it connected with what he was most attracted to in the medieval Christian tradition. And just to, be, just to make things hopelessly confused, he was also extremely knowledgeable about contemporary European philosophy. Uh, he was, he, he really was one of the, you know, one of the most brilliant scholars of the 20th century. There is just no doubt about that. So, so he knew um, contemporary non-theological European philosophy, Husserl and Heidegger and all the Europeans who were just starting to make their names and this is this is relevant even for people who don't have a philosophical background because it because it it sketches out the the breadth of Corbin's approach to reality. Even though it doesn't it doesn't it bears emphasizing that he was an intellectual and a scholar. He wasn't a football player, you know. He yeah. was an intellectual and a scholar, but within those limits, he was among the most broad-minded thinkers imaginable, the fellow I was talking to just yesterday um, used the word cosmopolitan in the best possible sense. And Corbin was enormously cosmopolitan, and we would say today multicultural. And so his approach to religion and philosophy is astonishingly ecumenical. So point is, he was reading medieval Persian um, mystic at the same time that he was reading Heidegger. Right. And he, and he, in his mind, oh my gosh, he says, they're saying the same kinds of things, which, which very few people were in a position to, to criticize or even evaluate. And, so he saw that there were opportunities within European thought to make connections with medieval Persian Islamic mysticism. And he went at that point, he turned, you know, full bore towards, towards the, the, uh, the, the Islamic tradition. And as 
as part of an answer to your question about whether he was a scholar of Sufism, strictly speaking, no, because the Sufis, strictly speaking, are almost all um, um, sh- uh, uh, um, Sunni. <laughs> Sunni, thank you. I'm so used to saying Shia. Um, they're almost all Sunni, and many of if not most of Corbin's um, masters were Persian, not all. So he mixes and matches Shia mysticism with Sunni, strictly speaking, mysticism um, to the point that scholars um, criticize him for his approach to Ibn Arabi, who, strictly speaking, was a Sunni. And people have said, oh, well, Corban treats him as if he were a Shia, which he wasn't. And so to say that he was a scholar of Sufism is confusing. It's better to say he was a scholar of Islamic mysticism as a whole, but his specialty was Shia thought, and the and this is also if you if I if I can go ahead, it's I I can I can tie us into Christianity here via his just, view of Shiism. Can I just one thing? So, well, two things maybe. So it's safe to say that because he is such a uh, a broad intellectual that he's kind of going against the tide of specialization in the twentieth century. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, is it safe to say that the phenomenology, the being, the looking at the, the gesture of intellectual restraint in the face of something, meeting the poetic in the um, Islamic world is sort of a key to his, the movement he's making, if you will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot in what you just said. I always struggle with the fact that describing Corbin and his approach and his work immediately gets you into discussions like the one we're having, which to most people, I mean most, sounds really abstract and bookish and you know i mean who would give a damn about this stuff but the fact of the matter is that corbin was a mystic and like the phenomenologists well he says my work is a phenomenology of the religious consciousness oh and 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 so because he was a mystic and a scholar. His apparently scholarly writing always comes from what Hillman calls the thought of the heart, which in the in the tradition of, of, of that Corbin presents, it's called Hima, which yeah. is the imagination which comes from the heart. So it's for for most of us, myself included, it's very easy to to read Corbin, or let's put this another way, certain of Corbin's writings are impenetrably scholarly and they make references to all sorts of things that nobody's ever heard of. But once you see what he's trying to do, you begin to be able to see through that. Because for Corbin, everything he says always is 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 very close to 
the icons is very close to a perception, a phenomenology of religious consciousness that to him was present in his immediate circumstances all the time. And, right. and it, it may be because it was so obvious to him that there was, there, there was no difference between his scholarly writing and his immediate presence to the, to the point where to others, it, it looks really abstract. And, you know, his discussions of angels always make me a little nervous because it's very easy to literalize them. And, and yeah. you know, um, and for Corbin, no, 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 it's a, it's a mode of being, a mode of presence. He lapses into philosophical terminology, and it's taken me, you know, five books to try to show people that, that don't be distracted by that. <laughs> You know, well, I suspect people now may even be attracted to that. Oh, there are some that are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I interrupted you, you were gonna go make a connection with Christianity, yeah. So, 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 so you asked long ago, you asked, uh, you know, was he a Christian? <sighs> um, no, yes, <laughs> because. You might you might put it this way, and I've tried a few times, and I think I would still stick with this. He was a very liberal, in certain senses, post-Islamic Protestant theologian and mystic. So, so it was you who said that. I, yeah, I that's me. That. Yeah, that's me. And I, I haven't come up with a better short. He occupies a very odd place, which I love. Um, he, he, because he, he's, he's a very funny Christian because he doesn't adopt the, the doctrine of the incarnation. There's, there's much, I mean, he sort he sort of thought Christianity began to go off the rails in about the second century because of his um, distaste for institutional religion and dogma he's oh he's sort of a free thinker is what they used to say and he's right. always attracted to <laughs> he's always attracted to the fringe thinkers in any tradition that is the people who are not the literalists as you said earlier who are not the dogmatists who are the mystics and the explorers and the people who are pushing the boundaries of, of the religions, those are the people he really likes. And the, the reason that that, <laughs> that makes him um, critical to the, to the point of, uh, well, yeah, of, of the doctrine of the incarnation is that he thinks, because his his theology is a theology of the Holy Spirit. There are certain traditions in what in Christian Christian thought that 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 pose uh, three ages of Christianity. There's the age of the Father, the age of the Son, and the age of the Holy Spirit. And Corbin is in the latter camp, the age of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is not in history, is not fixable and is therefore 
impossible to make dogmas about, <laughs> he would argue. That the, that the Holy Spirit is always a little on the move, always a little bit mysterious, always a little frightening. You know, there's, there's, he, he shares with Jung and Hillman a real attraction for mystery. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about him is that he seems to be saying that the encounter with the Holy Spirit is not replicable. It is always unique. Yes. Yeah. And it's that uniqueness, which is a key. Oh, and I, I got to talk about this in a few, in a couple of minutes. I, we, we have to talk about what he means by gnosis and Gnosticism. Don't let me forget that because I had a little bit of an epiphany yesterday, but let me finish about the Shiism connection to Christianity. So if we think of Corban as a, as a, um, Oh, and in Christian tradition, he's a Johannine theologian. That is, he's into the Gospel of John because that's the one um, that is most most apparently mystical. And he's very attracted to aspects of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, both Russian and Greek. Uh, he had colleagues, uh, the expats from from Russia in um, in Paris that he knew very well, and he felt with I think good reason that the Eastern Orthodox Christians had kept a kind of mystical um, iconography that had been lost over the years in, in, in the West. And so he's very attracted to Eastern Orthodoxy and then keep heading East. What he saw in Shiism in particular was um, a, a counterpart to the, uh, Christianity of the Holy Spirit, and and you have to at this point then begin to know something about the development of Islam, and we needn't go into that. But for the Shiites, there is for some of them the doctrine of the hidden Imam. Yeah. Uh, there were the and these are these are historical. Um, prophet-like leaders over history. And then for some of the Shiites, there, there occurred, <clears throat> and I forget the year in which it occurred, there occurred the great occultation. One of the, one of the imams disappeared and left, left the earth and, and took up a place in the religion, which in Corbin's mind corresponds to the function of the Holy Ghost in Christianity. And Corbin said, that's what keeps the Shiites from becoming too dogmatic, because you can never quite be sure what the hidden imam is up to. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's that contrast between the written laws which can be misinterpreted literally and the figure of the Holy Spirit who can never quite be interpreted at all, you know, Corbin loves to live in that tension. Yeah. And so he saw in, particularly in Shiism and in, and in certain aspects of Sunnism, sure, um, uh, that was where he felt very much at home. 
So he's a champion of soul. And I'm taking that's probably why Jung and is that too strong a statement? It's too strong a statement if you depending on your background. <laughs> if you're coming, if you don't know Jung and particularly Hillman, then I'd say, yeah, if I had an audience that didn't know about Hillman, I'd say, absolutely. Um, the, yes, uh, Corban in soul in the traditional Christian sense or something somewhat like it. But if you're, if you're grounded in Hillman, then that will lead you astray because what Hillman means by soul and what Corban mean by soul are distinct. Ah. <laughs> um, somewhat well, well okay so uh corban uh uh lays uh details a realm uh, for lack of a better where the imaginal occurs in the human psyche experience that's where the action is if you will yeah yeah um let me okay there's so <laughs> what William James would have called the cash value of all this is is how it and I, and I think that's that's a useful you know if you're reading Corbin you really need to at least I really you really need to ground yourself you know with some frequency and that's one of the things I like about Hillman is he's pretty grounded and and Hillman loved Corbin loved his work and uses it all the time. But Hillman was a psychotherapist and not a mystical theologian, and that makes the 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 the, the it makes the effect and the feel and the style and the and the implications of their work quite different. Hillman is kind of a subset. If the large world is the imagination, then Corban occupies. I, <laughs> this, this gets crazy pretty quickly. Corban <laughs> occupies, I think, a bigger space. Yeah. And maybe Hillman is in that space. He's at least adjacent to it. But Hillman's more interested in the individual in pain. And Corbin's not as a practicing psychotherapist. He's not thinking about the individual in pain, except as a as a spiritual practice. And he doesn't give anybody any any hints as to as to how to operate. Well, he gives very few hints as to how to operate in this universe of the imagination because he didn't see it as his job. His job was to open it to us, and then and then you know you're kind of on your own. That's 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 not true. But Corbin is is not. He's neither a spiritual master in the practical sense. You know, he didn't have he didn't have students sitting at his feet. He certainly had students who revered him, but he wasn't going to be giving them spiritual practices to perform. That that was you know he 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 was not that kind of um, master. He was an intellectual master. Hillman and Jung had a different job, and so it makes their it, it makes the cash value of their work a little bit different. Um, but what, what Corban, I, so I'm trying to, if you're the sort of person who likes Corban's writings and, and you don't mind pushing through the scholarly material, because I should say, some of Corbin's writings, if you're if you're reading them without 
any scholarly fear can be beautiful and really moving. And, and for me, for many years, I would always think, you know, I don't really understand what he's doing here, but wow, I love it. <laughs> and that's legit, it seems to me. I mean, he would have said, sure, go for it. You don't, don't worry about the date of Avicenna's or, you know, don't worry about that stuff. Mm-hmm. What he gives you in the immediate moment is a permission to see the world as magical. And he, he gives someone like me with a background in philosophical thinking permission to engage with your spiritual imagination and to take it seriously. I mean, to be perfectly autobiographical, um, all of us have um, preconceptions and hang-ups and, you know, predispositions that prevent us from doing, from making certain life choices and decisions. And for me, for whatever reasons, a lot of it was like intellectual. I, I couldn't believe this. I couldn't think this. I couldn't become Christian because, you know, I got all these hang-ups, and many of them were intellectual because I was trained as a philosopher and, and because I'm just the sort of person I am. So I'm reading, I'm reading Corbin and thinking, I can't do this. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about angels. This is nuts. And then I keep reading and think, but God, it's beautiful. I did that for a year or more. And then I discovered that Corbin had been the first Frenchman to translate Heidegger. And for me, that was completely gobsmacking. And what it it performed for me, I, I thought, oh, I can really take this guy seriously. And you see how screwy that is. But everybody's got something like sure. that. A sure. father figure, a hero, a set of beliefs. And if that hero suddenly says to you, oh, sure, you can go do that. I, I never said you couldn't do that. It's just fantastic. I, I, a similar experience with a student of mine. I was teaching Corbin to 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds because it can be done. You just tell them, oh, just ignore the parts you don't understand. We were reading Corbin and Hillman back to back, and one of my young students, and I've told this story a million times because it's really stuck with me, one of my 20-year-old young women students just slapped her hands on the table and she said, oh, my God, do you mean you can think that? 20 years later, I find she grew up in a very conservative, what we would call today, right-wing Christian family. And she felt so constrained by it. And Corbin said, I forget what. And she was just, oh, my God. So she had me saying it was okay. She had Hillman saying it was okay. She And suddenly she was free to be herself, to be more herself. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Everybody needs to. Because we all do have that. We, we might not every, have that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't get rid of them. That's, I mean, from a Jungian point of view, these are our complexes. Right. And I could say, 
I, w- I will say, because it was, I mean, I, I will be autobiographical. I went through many, many years of really serious, horrible depression. I mean, not just, <laughs> I mean, really clinical depression. And in, in my case, I had to work it out spiritually and intellectually. And Corbin and Hillman, and I won't go into great detail, but Corbin and Hillman helped me work through what was bothering me. And it was a process of recognizing what was it was it was a process of recognizing the difference between delusion and reality my delusion involved um a kind of dark nihilistic view of reality which i'd picked up we needn't go into it but it makes sense historically and autobiographically it's fairly clear how that landed on me and it took a long time to get out of that. And the tricky thing, and Corbin would analyze this in terms of coming to consciousness, which are terms he borrows from Jung, because it's worth mentioning that Corbin and Jung both spoke at the Aranos conferences. They were colleagues for 40 years. Um, and so they knew each other, and Corbin knew Jung's work. And, and there's a great, interesting, very long story about how their works compare and contrast. Um, but Corbin's happy to say this process of spiritual awakening is a process of, he says, um, escaping from the crypt into the universe. And for me, the crypt was wow. a kind of dark, nihilistic reality. And the, what, I'm, what I want to articulate here is that I've thought about that for many years as a Jungian complex, which it was. And you could call it the mother complex or the, I don't know, you can call it anything you want. But the, the, where, where, the, where the cash value of all this is, when I was, I'll just stay right inside me, when I was in that state of depression, it's just the world. It's the way the world is. The, the world is a dark, nihilistic, I mean, it's just, the, the, that is your reality. There is nothing outside it. And, and there's just, I mean, it's not a questionable, it's not an optional choice. It's not a question. It's just truth. It's reality. It's what everyone knows if the blinders come off their eyes, that everything is meaningless and dark. And then things happen magically and you're outside it for a moment and you think, whoa, holy shit, what was, wow, what was I thinking? The world is, I'll overstate things, the world is beautiful and glorious and, and I was so deluded and then you wake the next morning and you're back in it and there is nothing but it. And in my particular case, it took years and years of going back and forth and back and forth. And And then Corbin would say, you're on it, you're on it, you're on it. (laughs) And then eventually, eventually, I, and I think this is quite common, eventually you'll fall into that crypt, (laughs) you'll fall into that darkness and you will remember that an hour earlier you weren't there. And then you say, Oh, this isn't reality. It's me. 
And then you're, then, then it's like, okay, next time this happens, it won't be so bad because I know it's not going to last. I feel like, you know, maybe the increasing appeal of Corban is that not only is that darkness individual, it's also cultural. Oh, that so many people go through this now. And somewhere, I think it was the, all the world, your book, all the world, you talk, you make this comparison, you talk about the, the abyss that Nietzsche fell into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that the, that Corbin would say, no, but that's actually a luminous darkness and there's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Nietzsche, well, in my own spiritual path through Corbin, that that those passages in 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 Man of Light, it's it's in Man of Light oh, and sorry, Iranian Sufism. Sorry. Well, but it's also, but the, he does the same thing. Well, I mean, it's in my book, but in Corbin, it's in it's in Man of Light, and he also does a similar. He does a similar um, story, uh, you know, which is similar in structure in his book on Ibn Arabi. And, and, and in both of those cases, it's, it's, and I work, and the way I work these things through is by writing and thinking about them. And then, and then you have to actually do it with your, with your body. But for, for me, the kind of person I am, it, had, it, took, it took the form of writing. So I'm writing about what Corban is saying about Nietzsche and what he's saying about this. There are two forms of darkness. He's, he calls Nietzsche's collapse into madness. Whether you know, who knows, who knows what caused it? Maybe it was syphilis, but you know, for whatever reason, he fell into madness. Corban says it was a failed initiation. That Nietzsche was in this dark place, and he couldn't distinguish between the darkness of Araman, that is, the darkness of evil. And the luminous darkness, which is the darkness at the approach to the pole. So one, one addition I would make to something you said a couple minutes ago is, and it's probably really pertinent here. If you how to say this, if if you if you Corbin gives permission for the, 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 the religious imagination in a way that Jung wants to, but can't quite, um, because he's a psychologist. And at the last moment, he very often, not always, says, well, I don't know about God. I'm a psychologist. I can't say anything about it. Yeah. And so for many, for many people, Jung serves as a, as a spiritual leader, and they can make the move to, to religion pretty easily after Jung. But for many, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's just psychology. And boof, there you're back in it again. For Cor Corbin doesn't have any of those reservations. Even Hillman has some of those reservations, although I would argue that he's more useful, can be as useful as, as Corbin. But if you take Corbin as a master and you take his work seriously, you are in the religious imagination always and everywhere. So for, pe for people like me who absolutely had to have that breathing room in order, because the darkness was so dark and so deep, the only thing that can, that can counter it is everything. 
<laughs> and light. And so, so, so for me, when Corban was writing about Nietzsche, it was the same. It was the same movement that he made in a in a wonderful anecdote he tells about Ibn Arabi in the book on Ibn Arabi, which is creative imagination in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi. He says he tells a story about Ibn Arabi circumambulating the Kaaba in Mecca, and having doubts, thinking, "Oh." Oh, what if the angelic presences are gone? What if they're dead? What if they're... And then he has a female figure come down and look at him and say, Oh, man, you are, you are so delusional. We are fine. You're the one with the problem. And, and I mean, it didn't happen in a moment. But, you know, it's like, whoa. It hit that that story and others like it finally really got through to me. And I thought, holy shit, how could I be so inflated to think that, you know, God is dead and all these religious people are just assholes and, you know, everything's just, it was like, holy crow, wow, talk about inflation, talk about delusion, talk about stupidity. Do I come away knowing about God? And no, but I know that that kind of darkness is a human thing that is something you can get out of when it right. comes again, which it actually never did in the same form. Yeah. You know, I, when, when I finally came out of that, I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen again. I mean, things, bad things will happen, but I, I'm out of there. I, I've escaped Corbin's crypt. I've seen, you know, do I know anything? And here's what I want. Here's what I wanted to talk about gnosis. Do you want me to stop for a minute? No, no, go ahead. I, I do know. I do. I have a place I want to go, but go with gnosis right now. All right. Because I had a, I've been through this material a million times, and I got to say, by this material, I mean <sighs> the thinking through of the consequences of adopting a vision of reality in which the imagination is central. And you don't have to stay with Corbin or Hillman. They are both deeply embedded in the European tradition of Romanticism. Mm -hmm. So if you prefer William Blake or Coleridge or Wordsworth or Goethe or Keats or Shelley or Jerome Rothenberg and, and, and Robinson's book on the Romantic poets and their four and their and their successors in the 20th century. That's a for many people, that's a much better place to go. For me to go there, I had to have the full-blown permission to accept the reality of religious religiosity and spirituality in order to drop back down into say Charles Olson, <laughs> you know, yeah. because otherwise for me, there would have always been that doubt. What if the angelic, what if the angelic presences are really all are just all in my head and that's gone now. So here's the thing that I want to say about, Corbin's ecumenical cosmopolitanism, which is really quite stunning. You know, uh, one, one of the nifty things about Islam, um, which um, doesn't get a lot of press these days, 
is, for instance, that, that God says in the Quran, and you have to remember that the Quran is God speaking. He says in the Quran, to every people I have given a prophet. Now, it just so happens if you're Muslim that, that Muhammad is the best. <laughs> but God nonetheless says, to, there are no people anywhere to whom I have not given a prophet in the depths of the Amazon, in Australia, in New Guinea, in Siberia, in Europe, they all got prophets. And they're all going to converge the same thing. So Corbin loves that, as opposed to what I would call a misreading of Christianity, which says, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. That's the kind of dogma that makes Corbin just grit his teeth you know, so he loves any kind of religiosity, which is ecumenical. And I have, he, in, in the last essay that he wrote and delivered as a short talk before he died, called Eyes of Flesh, Eyes of Fire, um, he talks about the distinction between science and gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. In, in, in all of my books, I almost never used the word gnosis because it always made me nervous. I didn't want to call Corbin a Gnostic because it get, Gnosticism kind of gets, for, for those people who've never heard the word, it's a, you know, it's a different context, but Gnosticism kind of gets bad press because it suggests truth and certainty. I am a Gnostic. I am better than you. I know reality. And, and you know, there's some of... See, my reading of Corbin, which I would defend to the death, is that he's not like that. He can be a little bit of an elitist. He was a professor at the Sorbonne and a very great man and very smart. And, and you know, if you hang around with genuine mystics, whether they're a thousand years ago or today... They're kind of unusual people. And so, you know, you could become a little bit of an elitist. And there's elitism in, in the mystical path. Some people, you know, because it's kind of hierarchical, really, is some people are a little further along than others. And yet, I think at the heart of Corban's entire theocosmology, um, there is none of that but it can be read wrong. And one way to read it wrong would be to put a lot of emphasis on Gnosticism as a term. I finally got it through my head yesterday, as a matter of fact, teaching that, that essay. Corbin contrasts the knowledge of the flesh that by which he means, and I think he's, he's too much of an anti-scientist and we could talk about that, but it gets us elsewhere. He, he makes it sound as if all knowledge of the flesh, fleshy knowledge is, is wrong. It's not what he really means. What he means is that instrumental rationality and engineering and technology won't get you any spiritual transformation. Nothing, nothing will change in your soul. I actually think he's kind of, he can, that, that, it's not necessarily true, but <laughs> I, we all know what he means. You know, the destruction of the earth by technology. He's pointing at that stuff. And to that kind of knowledge, instrumental rationality, he opposes gnosis, which is this, well, it's like my transformation, you know. 
It's a sort of inward, soul-searching knowledge, which gets you, it gets you your own personal truth, which it does. We haven't talked about your, uh, your heavenly twin, um, which we don't need to yet. But when you have your Gnostic transformation, I've always been a little worried about that, you know, because you could have the, it's very individual. Corban is a, is, is very, because he is worried about the authoritarianism of institutions, particularly religious institutions, he, he says, no, no, religion is always personal. The transformation is always yours and yours alone. Now, part of, I like that, but part of me has always said, well, yeah, but what, what about social, what about society? What, you know, if you get all these individuals wandering around sharing their own, you know, isn't that going to like, what, what, he has no political philosophy and it's always worried me a little bit. And yesterday I finally got it through my head for the umpteenth time because I've been through this argument with myself over and over again. The Gnostic transformation should be conceived as a transformation of the thought of the heart, which is precisely what he says it is. And I haven't been able all these years to quite grasp the consequences of that. If you have Gnostically, individually transformed the thought of your heart, you're in the world with other people and able to treat them each individually as persons. And so the politics, the communion just flows right from this individual transformation so that and here's the two kinds of knowledge that he's talking about so that it would be perfectly it is it is it is easy it was easy for me to confuse the certainty of the gnostic the truth of the gnostic transformation with the certainty and truth of, say, engineering physics. They are so different that the truth of the Gnostic is in no way authoritarian or controlling. It's just love. It's the religion of the Holy Spirit. And so Corbin is not a political thinker, but politics at the deepest level flows right out of his, of, of his Gnostic vision. And so for me to call it Gnosticism, for some people still has this aura of authoritarian certainty, because many people who are deeply religious these days are pretty authoritarian and true. And Corban's saying, no, 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 failed initiation. You're, You're stuck in the dogma. If you really, really have a Christian, Islamic, Judaic, Zoroastrian, Buddhist, I mean, I think here a lot 
of, of the Western, at least the Western interpretation of what a Buddhist enlightenment is like, that's what Corbin is talking about. For, for Corbin, gnosis and individuation doesn't get you anything like an ego. The individual who appears is so free of anything self-centered that that communion then becomes the central feature of such a person's life. Yeah, it would. It seems as though the gesture of reverence would follow naturally from that. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say also this religious um, yardsticks that, that, that are out there, that's also in politics and, and science, too. These become fundamentalisms that we measure everyone, you know, all these things, um, all these bumper stickers, I believe in science. And, you know, saying, you know, and if you don't believe in science, then, but, okay, so. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You keep taking me places, so. <laughs> Where do you want to go? Well, maybe it's a good place at times to, to talk about the heavenly twin. Or, or should we talk about um, Tawil first? <laughs> all these, yeah, all these things are interconnected. Yeah. Uh, let's go with Tawil. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of equally important. And because we've mentioned uh, Blake and Wordsworth and Shelley and Keats and, and, and Charles Olson and I don't know who, you pick your favorite poet, uh, maybe we'll do the tar wheel. Because one of the, and, and this will help, I, I hope, help ground this material a little bit for some people to whom this might seem, you know, excessively uh, Christian or Islamic or spiritual. And, and, and there's a lot of people who, who, who love that stuff. But it seems distant to them. I mean, I, I'm completely there with that. Uh, I mean, I really am. Uh, not not that many years ago, towards the towards the culmination of my my reading of Corbin, it occurred to me. Um, gosh, you know, I wonder who besides James Hillman and the people at Aranos and the Islamic scholars. I wonder who else might have might have read Corbin and been interested by him. And luckily this was, you know, after the internet. So I didn't have to go to some big city and look in books for the rest of my life. I could just Google things. God bless it. It's destroying the earth and humanity, but it's, but it's, but we're having a lot of fun on the way out. And so one of the things I could do with a Google search was find things, which I immediately did. And what really excited me, and to this day, it's, it's a, I think, one of his, one of, one of the niftiest discoveries that I made personally. Most of the people, a very large number of the people who were influenced by Corbin were poets and artists. And for anybody who knows something about the history of American poetry in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, you'll, you would recognize the names of Charles Olson and, and Robert Duncan. Um, the first piece by Corbin to be translated into English was in Joseph Campbell's book, Man and Time, uh, you know, papers from the Aranos conferences, which appeared in about, oh boy, I, I always know the dates, late 50s. 
55, 56, something like that. And Charles Olson, a lot of people were reading these things. Actually, I was in touch with the, 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 the poet Diane de Prima a number of years ago. And, and, and she said, oh, yeah, we were all reading all the Bollingen books as they came out. And that was where the Princeton Bollingen series, the Bollingen people had money and they were sponsoring a series so that Jung and the Aranos people could get published and translated in English. And so there was the Bollingen series. And, 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 and that's where Jung's collected works came out. And Eliade and Corbin and uh, Joseph Campbell and all these people. So, so Diane de Prima, the poet, was a young woman at the time, um, said, oh, yeah, everybody was reading the Bollingen series. So when Corbin came out, oh, everybody's reading Corbin just because his, his books came out. And so, so Charles Olson was among the first to notice Corbin, and it was a, <laughs> one, of his, one of his almost entirely impenetrable and difficult essays called Cyclical Time in Ismaili Gnosis, which is a talk he gave in, in, uh, at, at Aranos. Um, and Olson... Uh, if you know anything about him, anyway, I, I'll make I'll make this short. Uh, Olson was just flipped out. He said, "This is fantastic! I can't believe this!" And then he read everything he could get his hands on by Olson and Charles and and, and um, by 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 Corbin. And then um, um, Duncan Robert Duncan was a big fan of of Corbin and Diane de Prima and just a whole bunch of poets were were deeply influenced by Corbin. And one of the reasons for that. We, which we haven't even mentioned yet, is for Corbin, language is a central theme. Um, it's true for so see, see Corbin sees himself as an as a, a theologian of the religions of Abraham, the religions of the book, Judaism. Christianity and Islam. He wants to add Zoroastrianism for various reasons. So there are four religions of the book. He's ecumenical enough that he's interested in all the other religions, but you gotta draw a line somewhere. So, so he says, I'm interested in the religions of the book and every religion that has a holy book is looking for the lost speech. Um, trying to recover the true meaning of the book, because I mean, look from a so 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 his his entire theology has many centers, but one of them is linguistic in the very broad sense. Um, God speaks breathes, sings the world into existence. That's an act of language in, in the broadest possible sense. You know, I mean, that you get that in Genesis, and there are some very interesting analyses and interpretations of Genesis um, uh, that Corban loves, all of which involve the idea of breath and speech. Thank, I mean, and I, I was, that was one of the things that really struck me about Corbin's theology. And thank God I went in through Corbin and not through the Kabbalah and the Jewish tradition, because that's too huge. And there's too much already in translation. And I would have dropped like a stone in that material. But if you do know anything about Jewish mysticism, um, or Islamic mysticism, which is 
you know, both of those traditions are so highly uh, focused on the words of God. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it's 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 interestingly less so in the Christian tradition because the Bible exists. Oh, I, we're going down a. Yeah, I don't mean to do this, but let me finish that thought. Because the Bible exists in so many translations, but the Quran is not the Quran when it's not in Arabic. And there's a similar sort of thing going on with the Hebrew Testaments. When, you know, they're in Hebrew, it makes a big difference. I mean, that's that's the book. It's in Hebrew. Anyway, so the whole point is that there are ways of reading. In the, in the Catholic medieval tradition, it was called Lectio Divina. There are ways of reading the Holy Scriptures, which are trans spiritually transformative you are as luther and others said you are to read the book as if it were written only for you that's what the that's what the the monks were doing in their medieval cloisters they were reading the book so that they would be spiritually transformed by the words bernard of clairvaux says i chew these words and swallow them until all my bones break out in praise so in order to understand <laughs> In order to understand the power of words in these traditions, um, you've got to do some deep psychological and historical archaeology because words have lost much of their magic since um, <laughs> since the invention of the alphabet, maybe. There are many people that have argued that. But to really understand the significance of words, you might turn to poets. Yeah. So the poets are reading Corbin's claims about the power of words and the relation of powerful language, that is to say, poetic language, the power of language to produce spiritual transformation. And these poets, particularly in the United States and particularly in the 1950s, remember, you know, those of you who are old enough, remember the 50s and 60s, these poets are thinking, that's my stuff. That's that's my stuff. Uh, Robert Creeley referring to Corbin's use of the word "hima" as the thought of the heart. Creeley says in a short essay he wrote, which was sort of about Corbin, oh, man, this hima shit, that, those are my people. <laughs> um, so, you know, these, these radical beat poets like Creeley and De Prima, you know, they're, they're reading Corbin on language and they're thinking, yes, this is what we are trying to do. We are here in the 50s and 60s trying to transform society and reality through the power of our words and that is what 
Corbin is telling them they can do. Corbin says somewhere, he quotes Schleiermacher. And you see here the whole tone changes. <laughs> you know, it depends on your context. But the idea is precisely the same. He quotes the romantic philosopher Schleiermacher to the effect that any book written with a similar power to the Bible could serve as a Bible. Now, Corban is thinking, no doubt, of the Quran um, and, 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 and other holy texts, but why not William Blake? William right. Blake certainly thought, you know, the New Jerusalem, and, and, and certainly that's the, way, that's the way Charles Olson was thinking of it. There's a critic of, of Olson's magnum opus, the Maximus Poems, who's, which is about, it's not about anything, but which is set in a version of Gloucester, Massachusetts. The critic says, well, you can't really understand the Maximus Poems unless you see, the, see Gloucester as a version of Hercalia, which was Corban's emerald city in the world of the imaginal. Okay, so there's conflicts of context here between and, and associations of language, which can be kind of wrenching. I'm happy to think of, 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 of Blake's London as a new Jerusalem. I have slightly more trouble with, with Olson's Gloucester, but the point is that they're they're attempting the same thing. And if you had lived in London in Blake's time, you would have been equally shocked that he was thinking of it as a new Jerusalem. So in any case, to get to the word tahwil, there's a, there's a word in Shiite um, uh, interpretive work on the Quran, which, which, which speaks to this process of spiritual transformation as you are reading the words of the Quran, and it's called tahwil. It's a deep spiritual interpretation of the word. Corban loves that. He says, that's, that's what you want. You want the individual reading the book. You do not want the priest standing, you know, before Luther, before the priest standing above, the, and nobody can read Latin. Nobody has any idea what he's saying because he's reading in Latin and he's telling the people what the book means and Corban's pulling his hair out and so is Luther. And so Luther translated the book into German and he says, each person should read the book for themselves because Corban would say, everybody needs their own top wheel. Everyone needs their own um, visionary recital. Corban equ equates tahwil with what he calls the visionary recital. Now, most of us don't get visions much of the time. I'm not a reader of the Bible, but I will say, and this is an anecdote I used to use a lot, maybe I even put it in a book, um, I was trying to get close to this biblical stuff while I was reading Corban. You know, I read the parts of the Quran in English. And one day when I was reading, oh gosh, I, was, I, I think it was in the Apocalypse of John, you know, uh, about trumpets. I was reading a passage about the trumpets at the Apocalypse. And, and I was just, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Jew. I just, you know, it's like, oh man. 
those aren't trumpets. And it still gives me shivers. Like something, something, suddenly something about the passage about the trumpets just got through to me. And I thought, oh, oh, dear God, they don't mean trumpets. <laughs> they don't mean trumpets at all. And what Corb, the, that, that word and the associated images started functioning as a symbol, what Corban would call a symbol, and a synonym for that in Corban's terminology would be an icon rather than an idol. And what's behind an icon is that mystery which sends shivers down your back and prevents inflation and makes you humble, <laughs> which is the other part of... It's a certain kind of reading. Though. It's not It's not an imperial reading where the mind is trying to take it and, and, or nail down a, a, a single thing. It's a, it's a phenomenological receptivity. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And and the reason that the the the, the connection between Corban and the poets is because for many people it's impossible to read the Bible this way. I mean, if you're not a Christian, it's just a book, you know, and, and many Christians have trouble reading it that way. Many don't. I mean, there's a whole tradition now, and I'm sure you're aware of it, of Lectio Divina, um, particularly in the Catholic context, but in, in Protestant contexts as well, of, of trying to resuscitate that kind of spiritual reading of, of the book. But for many people, myself in particular, um, it's poetry where you can sometimes get yeah. into that kind of reading. And for, I'm a very bad reader for of poetry bec uh, in, in the sense that, I don't mean in, this is not an evaluative term at all. I can't stick with most poetry very long because I think I either flop into just reading it and not letting it work on me at the heart level and when I do let it work on me in the heart level, I have to stop almost immediately. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> you know, oh, I just need like me a couple sentences of Emily Dickinson or Leslie Scalapino, or you know, I have I have a handful of favorite poets who just knock me out, and I can't take too much of it. And and I would like to be able to. I and, and the, my interpretation of that is I'm still too stuck. I, I want to hang on to the reality I have rather yeah. than yeah. It, it, it's so funny how the Jungian notion of complexes is so helpful here, and not only individual, but I think with the Bible we're looking more on a level of cultural complexes that that we participate in more or less um, that we cannot approach sacred text as poetry. That's that's fascinating. It isn't it? I, the, yeah, and the fact that you put it that way, reverse it, that we can't approach poetry as potentially sacred texts. Because, and, and Corbin would say, that's right on the money. You see what has happened in the history of the West. The secular and the sacred have been put aside so that when you're in one you can't get to the other and vice versa in Corbin's world of the imagination all of those schisms which split the west as he put it are healed so that so that 
you know, I'm not going to claim that there's anything about this hairbrush, which is particularly sacred, but it's on a continuum with things that are. And, you know, um, I can perfectly well imagine, and people who, who take psychedelics, um, and I don't mean that in a frivolous way. No. I actually don't mean it in a frivolous way. People who take psychedelics would be right on the money saying, well, oh, yeah, it is actually. <laughs> it's a pretty sacred object. There's a great, there's a great anecdote that, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but there's this, uh, uh, a, a philosopher turned developmental psychologist who teaches at Berkeley, and I wish I could remember her name, um, who's investigating um, effects of psychedelics, but not primarily that. Um, she's investigating um, developmental psychology, children. Children. And, and she says, you know, most children are high all the time. She's yeah. talking about really young children. She says, you know, I usually tells the anecdote. I was trying to get my, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old daughter to get off to daycare. And I, you know, grabbed her and said, come on, come on, come on. What was she doing? She had a little piece of fluff from the floor in her hand. And she's just going, oh, wow, look at that. And she's, yeah, they're high all the time. Because, and now speaking psychologically, you could say they haven't been, you know, socialized, but you could equally well say they haven't made any distinction between things that should be special and things that are just mundane. And the special, all the world is an icon for them. You see, you, you know, and, and so if you have, if you're the kind of person that I am who needs philosophical backup for this stuff, but, but I now have a incredibly flexible framework in which to place these things. Um, not that it's, um, and, and, and it's the flexibility of the framework. Yeah. That's, 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 that's fine. Um, that that's most important. Oh, and, and then in this context of, of language, in the context of the little girl with her little piece of fluff, Corbin would say, well, remember the little piece of fluff is language too, in this theological sense. He says, he says, you can not only read the holy book as if it were full of symbols, but you can read the world as if it was full of symbols. So, yes, all the world, uh, an icon, and reading needs to be taken as broadly as possible. And, you know, David Abram in his incredible book, The Spell of the Sensuous, um, points out, and, and, and Robert Bringhurst, the poet, uh, makes a big deal out of this, that reading and speaking come out of the world first, that reading is more like tracking than any other thing that early people did. You're, you, so you're out in the woods hunting and you read the clouds, you read the leaves, you read the footprints, you read and smell. And that, that reading, in the sense of bookish reading, is a small, highly important, intense, and transformative um, subset of a broader human capacity to read the world and to take it 
as symbols as the little girl is doing with her piece of fluff. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> and and the 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 other part of this is there's a there's a um a a Latin word that was that is used in the Western tradition which can correspond to tahuil. It does for Corbin, and that word is hermeneutics. So in Western Christian theology, there is a long tradition of hermeneutics from the Greek god Hermes, who was the messenger between the gods and humans, Hermeneutics came to mean the, the, the discipline of interpreting the holy book. Now, a little footnote, which is actually incredibly important for Corbin, is that Heidegger's being and time is about hermeneutics. Heidegger, who began as a scholar of medieval religious texts, um, thought you know, this whole scientific reductionism thing is bothering me. There must be a better way of thinking about people and the world. And coming from his dissertation on Duns Scotus, the medieval Latin interpreter of religion and philosophy, he said, hermeneutics, what they were doing with texts. What if we thought about human beings and the world in which we're embedded like the hermeneutes did with the text? Corbin reads this in Being in Time in 1929 when he says, holy shit, that's what Shurvardi is doing in the 1300s with the Quran. It's hermeneutics. That's why he got so excited about Heidegger. So with that as a back Ground to show why this term hermeneutics keeps popping up for me. Corbin says late in his life, I am proposing a theology of a permanent hermeneutic. You never stop interpreting. Okay. It's a theology, you know, you got, you got what you think the world means to you now. You have your gnosis, if you're lucky, now, but you're always open to the potential of the creative imagination, which is how the divine acts in us. Right. There is no end to it. It's a perpetual, it's a perpetually creative response to the world. Now, just to be as jarring as possible, but this is really important for me. That's how science is supposed to work mm. and rare and so often doesn't. If you read the very most creative scientists, you will inescapably find that they think of everything they do as hypothetical. Um, I was surprised. I know that Jacob Bernofsky says this 
in his the, the final or penultimate chapter of his great series, The Ascent of Man, where he contrasts certainty with knowledge in a way that's not unlike Corbin's um, contrast between science and gnosis. But recently, um, I, I read um, um, Richard Feynman, the, the great 20th century physicist, Nobel Prize winner, uh, whose work was really important to me when I was trying to be a physicist. I wouldn't have expected, I didn't know Feynman as a person well enough. You know, I never read any of his stuff. I certainly didn't know him personally. I was, I was surprised, stunned, and utterly delighted to read something in one of his books written for the public where he said, you know, we don't know anything. It's all hypothetical. He says, there is no end to the scientific process. You know, there was Newton and then, then there was Einstein and now there's string theories. This is never going to stop. If we, st if we think we've got a final answer, we are yeah. in real trouble. Yeah. The great scientists are, science is built on the idea of the more or less well-confirmed hypothesis. And although the contexts are radically different and there are differences, that is kind of the same mindset that Corbin is suggesting we adopt across the board, perpetual hermeneutics. Yeah. And if we close the circle, then we are falling into the idolatry and the literalism. Perfect. Yeah. And yet somebody like William James would say there's something in human beings that's so anxious <laughs> to, try, to try to close the circle. You oh, know? we we have we have it both. We have it both. It really oh, here's a story. Yeah, here's a st I, I used I, I this this was working on me yesterday. It seems to me that Corbin's final oh <laughs> it seems to me that Corbin's final piece, Eyes of Flesh, Eyes of Fire really put this really well, and at least it finally got through to me. The contrast between what Corbin calls science, I don't, let's, let's call it um, um, fundamentalist knowledge, and gnosis, that, 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 that contrast. Um, those are the two responses to uncertainty and anxiety that, that, that we tend to fall into, and most of us, at least in this culture, and maybe in every culture, maybe it's harder to become a Gnostic than it is to become a, a fundamentalist. Well, isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But those are the two responses. The one response, you're, you're free. You don't need to be a fundamentalist anymore. You see how, how damaging it is. It's what the Buddha said. You know, he came back from his enlightenment and said, oh, there's so much suffering and you're all doing it to yourselves. You got to listen to me, man, because once you're out of it, you'll see that it's just, no, oh, it's just not right. <laughs> you know, this is what Corbin's saying. That's what Gnosis is. It's like you come back and you just have this compassion for these people. So my story is, and, and maybe some of your listeners will have heard this. I was listening, as I often do, to the New York Times daily podcast podcast and I, at least i think that's where it was and um they were doing interviews with trump supporters this was just very recently and it was interesting and they weren't you know they were being reporters they were just interviewing people 
um, who were just so despondent and sure that the Democrats were destroying the country and that we had cheated, the Democrats had cheated. And, it was, and they had an interview with this one woman in Texas, which just was so heart-wrenching. You know, she was in desperate shape. You know, her kids couldn't go to school because of the virus. She'd lost her job. You know, she said, oh, America sucks. And she had all, all of her hopes in Donald Trump and the vision that she'd been sold about who he was and what he would do. And it was just so, you know, you know, it's like, oh, man, what we have here is an epistemological problem, I said to myself, you know, that you can be so deluded about the nature of reality and so sure of yourself. I have been. <laughs> we all are. And it was it was this moment where I just had this incredible compassion for this woman who I'm she is a, being a fundamentalist. She and how do you get out of that? Well, that's more your deal than mine. But you know, it's a folks who are caught in cults are not unlike folks who are caught in complexes. And from Corbin and Hillman's point of view, it's the problem of literalism. Yeah. And it's that it's fear. And, and the fear is often well-founded. You could die. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not that this, it's not that you can't, that bad things can't happen. It, 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 in fact, it, yeah, it's a, it isn't that at all. It is that, the, as the Buddha and the Gnostics and Ibn Rabi would say, oh, if you stop taking it so seriously, you know, you'll be much better off. So I've got a little list here of the things that we were going to talk about. And we've done, <laughs> we've done one of them? We've done maybe three. Oh, so, well, that's pretty think, good. Yeah, I think it's good. And I think what it speaks to is a future conversation. Um maybe a little more structured because we now know. <laughs> I, um, you, you see, you see structure. I have a lot of trouble with structure. I, it's very, it's very Hillmanian. But, but yes, we could, I, I, in fact, I will tell you that I, I did, I did a, I did an interview yesterday with a fellow from London who said, well, we have 20 minutes and I have three questions and we did it. I can be I can be constrained, but it, it's going to take a lot of work on your part. Well, you know this has been this has been outstanding, and I, it's got stuff for me to digest and integrate. And um, I'm sure that's if it's the case for me, it will be for the audience. Great. So a great thank you, and um, let's do it again soon. Let's do it again, and thanks for having me. I, I obviously enjoy it. Not sure why, but, but I do. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.